Will you pray with me? You are an amazing God, Lord. You do amazing things. You brought 117 children through these doors to hear about your love and how you are a rescuer. What an amazing message, Lord. You are a rescuer. Thank you for that. Father, as we look into your word now, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We ask that you would teach us this morning. Open our eyes and open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I went on a road trip to see uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter down in Kentucky. Um, slow that, show that first slide. My wonderful wife planned our uh, itinerary, and she was my navigator, and I, I piloted our minivan down the road to Kentucky with our three wonderful angels buckled in back. But not far down the road, there came a small voice from the back of the minivan with the question that I'm sure every parent has heard on any road trip. Any guesses? Are we there yet? Yeah. I thought to myself, is it too late to turn around? <laughs> Don't know if I can handle this. But seriously, we had a great time. We made some wonderful memories. And that's us in front of the ark. I would recommend anybody to go and to, to see those two uh, places. The Creation Museum is very well done, very informative. I could have spent uh, two or three days there just reading everything. But as I walked around each place, uh, I knew that I was going to be speaking today, and so I decided to speak about Noah's Ark. I don't know how many of you have heard a sermon on Noah's Ark. Maybe the last time you heard about Noah's Ark was uh, in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Um, it's not something that we talk about very often. Um, it's a, more like a story that's told in church in Sunday school. But it actually happened. A couple of months ago, my nephew asked me some questions about creation and how we can know the Bible is true when his science teachers are telling him um, different things. And what they're telling him is based on science. His questions are good questions, and lots of people ask those kinds of questions. And it can be difficult to find answers if you don't know where to look. And just like my sister-in-law, she didn't have the answers, so she told my nephew to ask me. There are great resources out there that talk about creation, about the flood, about Noah's Ark. One of those places is Answers in Genesis. They're the creators of the Creation Museum and the Ark. That's a great place to start. In our church here, we have Steve Schwartz, another great resource. Sit down. I'm sure he would love to talk with you. He writes for Answers in Genesis. Let me begin with this, and this is what I told my nephew. There are two worldviews 
out there concerning the origins of the universe. There's the evolutionary worldview and the biblical worldview. And each group has the same evidence. It's, the difference is how they interpret that evidence. And like I told my nephew, those who hold to the evolutionary worldview have to explain the universe without God. So all of their theories assume there is no God. Well, the evidence for the global flood that destroyed all life on the earth, except for Noah and his family, is there evidence? Let's take a look. If you have your Bible, or find one in the pew, turn to Genesis chapter 7. And that's where we'll start. Many doubt the flood because scientists and others question how there could be enough water to cover the mountains that exist today. Mount Everest in the Himalayas is 29,029 feet high. So how? So they doubt that the floodwaters could cover Mount Everest by 20 feet. That's what the Bible says. Well, the question that I have is, were the mountains as high in Noah's day as they are today. We know that because of plate tectonics, that some mountain ranges continue to rise and to continue to be pushed up. So what did the earth look like in Noah's day? This is a slide. Um, most scientists will agree today that at one time in the past, um, the earth... All the continents were connected in a supercontinent. There it is. They called this supercontinent Pangaea. In Genesis 1-9, God says, Let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. So all the water was gathered around the land. In, this is just one concept of what Pangaea may have looked like. And I know it's a stretch to take from that one verse that this, there, there was a supercontinent, but it does give us a clue to what the world looked like in Noah's time. How tall were the mountains? We don't know. How much land was exposed out of the water? Again, we don't know. We weren't there. So where did all the water come from? In Genesis chapter 7, in verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. So the springs under the ground were opened by God. We know that there are vast 
subterranean um, pockets of water on the earth today. These were opened to allow the water to escape. We also know that if you take all the land that there is today exposed, and if you flattened out the mountains, there is enough water just in the oceans to cover the earth to a depth of 1.7 miles. That's pretty deep. We don't know how high the mountains were. So it is possible that there was enough water underground, above in the sky, and in the oceans to flood the earth and to flood the mountains to a depth of 20 feet. Genesis 1, verse 6 and 7 tell us that God separated water from water. Genesis 1, verse 6 and 7 say, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the water which, is, which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. In the pre-flood world, there was a vast amount of water in the earth's atmosphere, the heavens, and God caused that to fall as rain. It's interesting to note that in the creation account, this is the one time that God didn't say, and it was good. I think he knew that one day he would use that water above to flood the earth and destroy all mankind. So not knowing what the pre-flood world looked like, not knowing how high the mountains are or were, it is possible that there was enough water to cover all the land. Well, what else would you expect to find if the world was covered with water? You would expect to find layers of rock laid down by water all over the earth. And that is just what we see today. Next slide. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon. And you can see very clearly individual layers of rock. If these layers were laid down slowly over time, you would expect to see evidence of erosion between the layers. Portions of the layer that would be eroded by wind or by water flowing down and then would be filled in by subsequent layers. And so you would have gaps in the, the layers. But what we see is, from the, the next slide, what we can see in the Grand Canyon is no evidence of erosion. You see very definite breaks between all of the layers. This can only happen is if they're laid down one right after the next, as you would expect if the earth was covered with a flood. And when the flood waters receded 
I believe that they cut, cut deep valleys through those soft sediments that were laid down. And we know today that the power of water can be very destructive. We've all seen pictures of local floods that do great, amount, great amounts of damage. It's a picture of a road that was flooded out, and I imagine in a matter of minutes or a couple hours, all that dirt was washed away. In the next slide, you'll see a road cut in half by flowing water. Very destructive. What else would you expect to find if there was a global flood? Fossils. You'd expect to find fossils. The continents have had, the, the conditions have to be right for an organism to become a fossil. Usually plant or an, the animal has to be buried quickly, which alters the decaying process. And then over the time, those minerals in the animal or plant structure break down or are transformed into the, and take on the minerals that are around them in the rocks. It doesn't always happen if an animal dies and is laid out in the, to exposed to the, the weather, um, the conditions aren't right for it to become a fossil. It will turn to dust, disappear. Animals will take it and eat it. Um, so for the, the conditions have to be just right in order to form a fossil. Some fossils are found in strange places, like uh, these pictures show. This is the fossil of a, an ammonite, uh, and these were found uh, in the Himalayan mountains. The next one shows, again, another fossil of an ammonite. It was a sea creature, um, and these were found in the Himalayas. So either the Himalayas were not as tall as they are today in the past, or they were at one time covered in water. And then this is one of my favorite fossils. You can see that this fish was in the process of eating another fish when it was buried. It shows you how fast uh, the sediment was flowing in order to, first of all, catch the fish and then bury it while it was still eating its supper. I've just scratched the surface of the evidence for a global flood. There's a lot more. Um, and I would love to sit down and talk with you about that. Nancy saw this sign at the ark, and I wanted to include it. It says, if I can convince you that the flood was not real then I can convince you that heaven and hell are not real. And it's a, a serpent, a snake, was wrapped around that sign. I wanted to include it because it shows who's behind the attack on the truthfulness of the Bible. If the devil can get us to believe what's in, what, that the things in the front of the Bible aren't true, it's very possible for him to get us to believe that the things in the back of the Bible aren't true. Another line of questioning has to do with the ark itself. 
people ask how Noah could fit all the animals inside the ark. There just is not enough room for all the animals to get on the ark. Well, just how big was the ark? In Genesis chapter 6, we're given the dimensions. Genesis 6, verses 15 and 16. God says to Noah, this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set it, uh, set a door and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So, it was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high, and it had lower, middle, and upper decks. That's all we're really told about how big it was. From ancient shipbuilding techniques, the creators of the Ark Encounter made some educated guesses uh, as to what it might have looked like, and they're very upfront about that. As soon as you enter it, they say, we have this much information from the Bible, but we know from ancient shipbuilding techniques that it is possible, and this is their rendition of what it could have looked like. What is a cubit? It's kind of a weird measurement. A cubit is the ancient form uh, of measurement that they used when building things. It's the distance from the elbow to the tip of a man's hand, typically about 18 inches. However, they have discovered that there, were, there was a long cubit and a short cubit. What's the difference? The long cubit is measured from the back of the elbow to the tip of the tallest finger. The short cubit was measured from the inside of the elbow to the tip of the tallest finger. And they have found evidence that both were used in ancient structures. So on me, I'm six foot tall, the, cube, the short cubit from here to here is a little bit more than 18 inches. The long cubit from here to here is a little more than 20 inches. The creators of the Ark Encounter have chosen to use the long cubit measurement. So the dimensions of the Ark are 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 50 feet high. And being on the ark, I was amazed at the size of it. It was enormous. Nancy and I talked about how many people we thought were on the ark at the time we were there. And we estimated that there was probably about 5,000 people inside the ark while we were there. But I never felt cramped. I never felt like I was being herded along like cattle. I thought, in fact, that there's lots more space. Nancy saw, that, uh, saw the figures of the day before that 14,000 people had gone through the ark the day before we got there. That's an incredible amount of people. Now, they didn't have all the cages in the ark, 
because they had exhibits telling the story along the side, along the hallways in different areas um, that told the story. Um, so these next slides, while we were there, I'm at one end of the ark, and I'm looking down to the other end. There's still quite a bit behind me, um, and those pillars you see, they're trees, single trees, they go from the top to the bottom. That amazed me. I stood next to one. I couldn't get my arms around it. Um, where they got those trees, I'm not sure. They did say that it is the world's largest wooden structure. Uh, so that's, and I could see why. Those, some of those beams were, were incredibly thick. Next, next one. This is what they think that the cages for some of the smaller animals could have looked like. Um, they had a few rows of these. You'll notice there's a uh, terracotta pot that they considered, well, you know what, Noah could have had that to um, hold water for the animal. And on the other side, there's a space where they could have put food, grain, for those animals to eat. Um, that's another question. How could they feed? How could eight people feed all those animals? Um, they had a one, one section that uh, they had like pots for like snakes or, or amphibians, frogs, different things like that, that um, they would, they said that they would put moths in one spot. The moths would lay eggs, they would grow, they produce pretty rapidly. The moths would fly through a little hole into the spot where the frog was. The frog would eat the moth. So, and it would be a continual feeding process. I thought, hey, that's pretty ingenious. So there were ways to feed the animals, to, to house them. Um, the next one shows, this is, this is uh, jars that they had along the sides that could have held food. Um, next one. Looking down at some of the cages that they had uh, for the larger animals. The next. This was the bear kind. There's plenty of room on the ark. And Noah didn't take all the animals. He was told to take two of each kind. What is meant by the word kind? Most likely it refers to species or family groups. There are lots of different dogs in the world today, but they all come from the same family, the canine family. So Noah only had to take two dogs. Same with cattle. Lots of different kinds of cattle, but they're all from the same family. One estimate is that Noah only needed 16,000 animals to represent the different kinds or different family groups that exist today. Also, Noah probably didn't take adult animals. He probably took juvenile animals. Next slide. So they would be smaller. But what about dinosaurs? I believe they were probably on there too. In fact, the average dinosaur was only about the size of a sheep. And you, you also have to remember that God brought the animals to Noah. In 
chapter 6, verse 20. It says, Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to, be, to keep them alive. God brought the animals to Noah. He didn't have to go out and find them. So maybe God, knowing what the post-flood world would look like and would be like, maybe he allowed some of the animals to perish in the flood. Well, how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? In Genesis 5.32, it says that Noah was 500 years old when he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 7, verse 6, we're told that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So there's 80 to 100 years for Noah to build the ark. But there's no indication that he did it by himself. He could have hired other people to help him build the ark. What's the reason for the flood? Why did God destroy the earth in this way? In Genesis 6, 5, and 7, we're told what was going on during the lifetime of Noah. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let that sink in a minute. God was sorry that he made man. The sinfulness of man had gotten to the point that God was sorry he made them. Our sins grieve the heart of God. Do we think of sin in this way? I must confess at times I rationalize my sins, saying to myself, eh, it's no big deal. I wonder if others are like me. Ah, it's just a little gossip. Just a little bit of lust. Ah, it's just a little white lie. No big deal. But it grieves the heart of God. And driving down the road on our vacation, that thought kept coming over me. My sins grieve the heart of God. I love God. I love him for all the ways he loves me, for all that he's done for me, for sending his son to die on the cross for me. But when I sin, it's like I spit in his face. I love Nancy, and I would never do that to her. Why do I do it to God? 
if I'm going to overcome my sinfulness, if we are going to overcome our sinfulness, uh, then it needs to start with a realization that our sin grieves the heart of God. The sin of man was great in Noah's day. Everyone doing his own thing. Jesus says in Luke 17, 26 and 27, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and then the flood destroyed them all. Everybody doing their own thing, doing things that grieve the heart of God. The flood was God's judgment on man's sin. And if the devil can get you to believe that it didn't happen, then it's a slippery slope to believing that God won't judge you for your sins. And everyone gets to go to heaven. It makes a mockery of the justice of God. But the story doesn't end there. In Noah's day, God provided a means of rescue. Look at verse 8 in chapter 6. But, I love it when you read the Bible and you come across that word. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God looks at the world and sees violence and sin, and he's ready to destroy it all. And then he sees Noah, and he selects him to be the one to use to provide a means of rescue. What was it about Noah that brought God's favor? Verse 9 says that he was a righteous man. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man, he was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. Noah was not like the rest of the world. When everyone else was doing his own thing, Noah was doing God's thing. He was righteous or free from guilt. He was blameless. You couldn't accuse him of wrongdoing. But I think what stood out most of all about Noah was that he walked with God. Nancy likes to go for walks. And she usually asks me to go along with her. And I don't mind going on walks, but I would much rather sit on the deck or in front of the TV. And when she asks me to go with her, I often ask her, is this an exercise walk or just a walk around town? Because if it's an exercise walk, I got to prepare. I got to be ready my mind for an exercise walk. But I go. Reluctantly at times, yes, but I go. Why? Because I enjoy being with Nancy. When we're out on the walk, we're talking, we're laughing, we're enjoying time together. Walking with God is like that. When we enter into an intimate heart relationship with God through faith in His Son, 
he becomes our heart's greatest desire. Knowing him, hearing his voice, sharing our hearts with him, and seeking to please him become our all-encompassing focus. He becomes everything to us. Meeting with him is not an activity reserved for Sunday morning. We live to fellowship with him. A.W. Tozer states that the goal of every Christian should be to live in a state of worship. And this is only possible when we walk with God. Just as walking with Nancy requires me to say no to other things, so walking with God requires letting go of anything that would be a distraction. If I went on a walk with Nancy and walked ahead of her the whole time and never spoke to her, or if I spent the whole time looking on my phone, it would not be an enjoyable experience, not be an enjoyable time together. And many people attempt to walk with God, but they, belong, they bring distractions along. Sins, worldly entertainments, unhealthy relationships. They know these things are not what God would want for them, but they pretend, but they pretend everything is fine. The relationship is not satisfying to either of them, though. To walk with God means that you and God are in agreement about your life. To walk with God means you have aligned your will with His and seek every day to consider yourself crucified with Christ. You don't have to be perfect. None of us are. But our heart's desire is to be pleasing to God. And you're willing to let His Spirit conform you into the likeness of His Son. Noah walked with God. And because he walked with God, he was obedient. God told him to build an ark. And I'm sure he had questions. I'm sure he thought the task was beyond his ability. He probably thought he was too old. I mean, he's 500 years old. That's old, right? He probably was ridiculed by the people of his, of his day as he's building it. I can imagine people walking by, hey, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. God's going to flood the world. Okay. <laughs> kind of crazy. But he did it. Because God told him to. God used Noah to build the ark that would provide a means of rescue for, the man, for man and animals. God told Noah to put a door in the side of the ark. You have that slide? The next one. Yeah. God told Noah to put a door in the side. It seems obvious, right? You need a door in the side of the ark to get everything on there. All the food, all the animals, something has, you have to get them in somehow. But the door is significant. To be rescued from the flood, you had to go through that door. You had to admit that you needed rescuing. And God is going to judge the world again. And once again, he's provided a means of rescue. Another door to go through to be saved. Let me show the next slide. I don't know if you can make it out in the middle of that door. In John 10, 
verses 7 and 7 through 10, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And just like in the ark, when the door was shut, it was too late to get on. And there's a time coming when it will be too late to enter the next door that God has provided. And God may be asking you to do something that sounds crazy. Last week when I heard Jesse talk about going to Iraq, to me that sounded crazy. Go to Iraq. Uh, <laughs> I like Dazzle. But he's going. Elise is going to Iraq because God asked them to. It may be beyond your ability. You may think you're too old. He may be asking you to go for a walk, to deepen your relationship with him. Maybe you've never trusted him as your savior. And you're sensing today is the day to trust him for the first time. Don't let the door close. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're facing, are you going to go through the door? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you. Thank you for providing a means of rescue for me and for all of us. We just need to go through the door. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see the right way. So we can see the path that leads to the door where we can be saved. Thank you for sending your son, the door. In Jesus' name, amen.